Well, hello again, and good afternoon, or good morning, good evening, whatever time zone you might be in. My name is Guy Stevens. I'm the founder and executive director of the Alliance Against Seclusion and Restraint. I want to welcome you to our program today. A little bit about the Alliance. I started the Alliance Against Seclusion and Restraint to raise awareness about the issue of restrained seclusion happening in schools across our nation. Our mission is to educate the public and connect people together who are dedicated to changing minds, laws, policies, and practices so that we can reduce and eliminate these practices in schools across the nation and beyond. Our vision is to see safer schools for students, teachers, and staff, and welcome you all for being part of our community. Today, I am very excited to have our guest, Diane Gould, who's gonna be joining us for a special presentation. I do want to let you know that we will be taking questions at the end of the presentation today. However, feel free to put those in the chat at any time. So if you wanna put them in there, we'll find them later. And of course, just feel free to tell us who you are in the chat and where you're from. I do want to let you know that we'll be recording today's event and it will be available after the event on YouTube, Facebook, and also as an audio podcast. So before we get to our guest, I want to bring on the screen with me here, uh, our very special co-host, Beth Tolley, and tell you a little bit about Beth. Beth is a director of educational strategy for the Alliance Against Seclusion and Restraint. She actually retired in 2018 from a leadership position in Virginia's lead agency for early intervention for infants and toddlers. Uh, her experience as a parent and grandparent of children that have had uh, behavioral challenges has fueled her passion to improve the lives of children and their families through education, mutual support, and advocacy. And I'm always excited to have Beth here with me. Beth, welcome. Thank you. I'm, I'm excited to be here. Excellent. So we've, we've got a great presentation on tap today. And if you would be so kind to introduce our guest, I'm going to go ahead and bring Diane onto the screen with us here. Okay, great. So I'm excited to introduce Diane Gould, who I met for the first time last night, uh, and it was delightful. Um, we had some delightful exchanges online, and I mean, talking, and then again, follow-up emails. And uh, I think we are, um, we'll be friends for a long time. Um, I wanna tell you some of my impressions, and also I want to tell you first, she has an article on our um, website that's a really, uh, I really uh, enjoyed that article. And some of what I saw in there was, um, I just talked to her about this before, self-reflection. And, and really what I, what I see with Diane is someone who is a lifelong learner, someone who's, who is constantly trying to learn more to do better. Um, so we can all do the best we can for the kids and families we, we serve. Um, she has, uh, I think her first degree was social work. And she continued after that to um, get additional certifications and um, uh, training. Let me tell you first, she has a private practice outside of Chicago. And uh, before that, she worked in the schools. So her, besides social work, she also has certification in applied behavior analysis. She has additional training from California in a applied behavior analysis. She has been trained um, in the, at the Center for Collaborative Problem Solving in Boston. And she also has the PEERS certification. And she has um, taken training with the Social Thinking Center um, in San Jose, California. Uh, Michelle Garcia, winner. <laughs> See if I remember all the names. I know, I, I, um, know of her and know of her work too. Um, it's someone that Ross Green talks about. So anyway, um, I, I am excited to um, have Diane with us. 
and look forward to the presentation. Great, thank you, Beth. And Diane, welcome. We're, we're really excited to have you here today. Uh, I know several months ago, I got the opportunity to, to chat with you and uh, quickly realized that we, we shared a lot of similar uh, ideas in terms of eliminating and reducing restraint and seclusion and, and doing better for kids in schools across the, the country. Uh, so it's really an honor to have you here today. We're excited about your presentation. I'm gonna go ahead and bring your presentation up on the screen here. And uh, everyone is now seeing your slide deck. So we will let you take it away and do your presentation. And uh, we will disappear, but we will be here if you need any help at all. So Diane, welcome. Thank you so much. Um, it is such an honor to be um, presenting today. And I'm so grateful that, you know, I've come to know the Alliance and all the wonderful work you're doing. Thank but you. It's really humbling too, because um, I know some of the guests that you have had are really my heroes. So, um, you know, I'm gonna talk for in about an hour just about my thoughts on behavior, and then hopefully there'll be some questions and discussion. So I wanna start with just saying that, you know, the last, what, seven months for me and all of us have been very unusual. So uh, I've had the luxury of some extra time because I'm not doing groups or school visits. Um, so I've spent a lot of that time, you know, really studying different things, um, mostly behavior related. I've spent the time, you know, kind of reflecting on my, you know, uh, professional journey and also kind of working on my own behavior. So I like behavioral stuff. I always have. I look at like behavior change as um, just like personal growth. And I'm always kind of looking at that in terms of how to make myself kind of happier, healthier. And, you know, because I've had these months and more time, you know, I'm on, I have like data sheets and post-it notes all over this office space I use um, because I like those things. I'm on my third round and, um, you know, I'm doing so-so, even though, because behavior change is really hard and I have the skills and I'm certainly motivated, but it's hard. Certain things I've kind of taken off my list, like um, meditating every day, which would have been really helpful today, but I, it's too hard. I took it off my list. Um, the behavior change to make myself happier that I'm probably doing the worst at is the goal of listening to music every day. Ridiculous, right? That shouldn't be hard, but that's what I'm doing worst at. Um, I wanna add with these behavior change um, goals of mine, what makes it much better is I picked them, right? So if my husband or my adult children had made the list for me to work on, you know, I wouldn't be doing as well and I certainly wouldn't be as happy about doing it. But it is it is a really hard um, thing to change behavior. And, you know, so these are kind of my thoughts about it and my history with it that I've been kind of thinking about. And I've been able to really research it and study and learn new things, which um, I love to do. So I wanna start by saying, um, so, I wanted to be a social worker since I was 10. I had heard of Jane Addams. I wanted to go to Jane Addams School of Social Work in Chicago, even though I lived on the East Coast. And I was always wanted to be a social worker. And I um, kind of started volunteering in our special rec department in 
Northern Virginia when I was 15 and decided kind of that is the population I wanted to do social work with. Then I went to college and, you know, found out they didn't even have a social work department. So I majored in psychology. And back then to pass, you know, kind of psychology, you had to pass Rat Lab, which had some other name, but everybody called it Rat Lab. Um, and you had to train a rat, right? So you had the Skinner bat box and you had to train your rat um, to kind of go from the back of the cage to the front of the cage, pick a push a bar, get food and in a certain pattern. That's how you had to um, had to pass. Uh, my rat was named Ebony Libido. I thought it was very clever. And um, I passed the class and, and you know, years later, I think Rat Lab um, became really expensive. So my school had a fundraiser to keep Rat Lab. So you could have, um, for a $100 donation, you could have a rat named after yourself. For $500, you could have a rat named after the person of your choice. I thought that was pretty clever. It didn't work, they closed Rat Lab. Um, I think psychology departments now use like virtual rats. Um, so it was a fun class. I liked it. But over the years, I've kind of figured out that, you know, people are not rats or pigeons. Um, so my behavior change journey. So I told you I've always been interested in social work, wanted to be a social worker and um, worked in schools, private practice. And, you know, I, I came to realize that behavior was kind of getting in the way for a lot of the clients, the students, the families I served. And it was impacting family life, challenging behavior, and um, friendships and schools and kids were getting suspended. And, you know, my, so my, my clients were struggling with, you know, what was considered challenging behavior. And they also didn't have some behaviors that would have been helpful. So I wanted, I wanted to know more about behavior. And I um, had heard about this group in California, IABA, uh, which is Gary Lavinia, who kind of started this positive behavior movement without punishment. And I thought, oh, maybe I'll go there to get trained. Um, and also about that point too, that um, there were lots of new behavior analysts kind of popping up at the meetings I was going to, behavior therapists coming to the schools. And um, I wasn't so happy with kind of the, the rigid approach. So I thought, you know, if you can't beat them, join them. And I, I went and got my BCBA and um, realized in my mind that th there's kind of a way to do this, um, kind of merging the tenets of social work with kind of what behavior analysts do. Um, so I, you know, as a social worker, I was always very comfortable. I was a social worker for decades, you know, it was like wearing clothes that, um, that fit well. When I became a behavior analyst, you know, it was like wearing clothes that don't fit so well. I never was really comfortable um, until I kind of figured out how to merge the two. Because social work really focuses, I think, on, on core beliefs of um, partnering with clients and non-judgmental attitudes and 
kind of working with people, not doing things to people. And I thought I can kind of bring some of that understanding to behavior analysis. And um, it also becoming a BCBA, it, it got me a seat at the table. So I'm really lucky I get to work with amazing nonprofit attorneys and do school-based evaluations, um, behavior evaluations in Chicago for these lawsuits. And, um, and it's because I'm a BCBA, I can do that kind of work. So um, I've been really happy about that. So I've been kind of figuring out like my approach to behavior. And just the last year and a half, really, I started working kind of um, in this PDA movement. So PDA is um, a subgroup of the autism spectrum. It's, a, it's the demand avoidance profile of autism. So PDA um, stands for pathological demand avoidance. I know it's a horrible name. The pathological part is awful. And like PDA means something different to most of us, which is also awful. So um, I've been working to kind of bring services to people who um, identify of being impacted by PDA in America. And what first really grabbed me about working with this population was I love the approach to behavior in the PDA um, books. So right now it's mostly kind of in the UK and Australia where there's books, there's services, there's even schools for people diagnosed with PDA. And I just love their approach to behavior and felt more in sync with kind of my, my approach. And uh, adults, they call themselves PDAers, are very articulate and they're writing and they're talking about kind of um, the struggles they've had and what's worked for them in terms of support. And a big part of PDA um, support is really first and most important is building trust with the individual you're trying to support and partnering, right? So trust and partnering. And those our social work, you know, tenants, and they're also really important, I think, in behavior change. And um, what was striking too in all the PDA literature is, you know, it's very clear not to use rewards and consequences, which is so different, right, than our typical approach to behavior. Um, so maybe I'll talk a little bit about PDA later, and I'm happy to talk to anyone who's interested in that. Um, so because of my interest in PDA, I was looking outside of America um, in terms of ideas for supporting behavior. So um, Bo Elvin is, from Sweden is amazing. I'm going to talk about his work and Andy McDonald in the UK. Um, and I'm going to talk about his low arousal approach. And they're just doing fabulous work. Um, I think a lot of you know Ross Green. He, um, he's a supporter of the Alliance and his work's so helpful and important. And I think more and more people are hearing about the polyvagal theory too in, in terms of supporting behavior. And I think just adopting um, or understanding that neuroscience is part of this 
um, I think that's increasing and, and, and has to be kind of where we go from here. Um, so I want to spend a minute about ethics. So social workers and behavior analysts, um, you know, have to follow some ethical guidelines and get some training. So I, um, you know, I was trained in ethics, you take the classes, but it's really just, I think, until maybe the last six months um, to a year ago, I started really thinking about the ethics of behavior change. Um, so, so what if like changing someone's behavior is part of what makes them happy or, or is part of their identity, those behaviors? Um, and then also, do we, do we change people because we're trying to get them to fit into our world or make them more normal? Are we trying to take away their autism or disability? Like these are, are big questions and important questions that I think we all have to, to ask and be mindful of. And I think just, you know, as a therapist, I spend, you know, most of my time actually working directly with people and families um, and their families. It's always about this balance of acceptance and change. So it's it's for ourselves too, right? That balance. Certain things we just need to to figure out how to accept about ourselves and pinpointing what we want to change. So it's the same for ourselves, and and it's the same for other people. How we um, how we support them in terms of change and whose goals are there, right? So, so these are, these are hard questions, um, but they're really important too, too. So, and, and you all know this, right? And it's the reality that children and adults have been hurt and even died because of behavior change. And, and routinely kids are still held on the floor um, in the name of behavior support. And we know these are the most vulnerable populations. Um, and, and what really struck me, um, I, I'm admitting, so I'm hoping that like confession really is good for the soul because I think through these presentations, I do a lot of confession. And, and part of it is what really hit me first about seclusion and restraint and just our traditional behavior change methodology is that it makes behavior worse, right? And that was the kind of aha moment and eye opening um, first before I really looked at kind of, um, you know, the, the horror of what we're really doing. Um, so so I, we need a new approach, a better way. And, and I really think it's possible to do that. And I'm going to talk a little bit about that today um, too. So, so again, a, a little history. So um, when I went to social work school, I kind of got my certification in school social work because I thought I wouldn't help kids and that's a captive audience. So when I went to my interviews, when I was getting ready to graduate, um, I've always worked in special ed cooperatives. But during, I think, Every interview I had, and I still remember, um, I saw kids being restrained as part of the interview. And, you know, I, and then um, I got my first job and it was in a school for kids who were living in a big residential 
um, facility outside Chicago. And restraining kids was part of the job. And, and we were housed in a building that also had a daycare center. So even if, so if the, if the kids just got kind of close to the door that separated the two programs, we were supposed to restrain them. And we did. Um, and I think in those years, those early years, I didn't, I didn't even question it. It's what everybody did. We were told to do. It just kept doing the same interventions over and over, even though they didn't really work. And um, it was only, I think, when kind of, I was able to kind of step back and look at it and see that these things were dangerous and made things worse. You can't kind of unsee them once you've seen them. And I think as humans, you know, we get pretty complacent just keeping doing the same things over and over, even if they don't work so well. It's just part of human nature. Um, you know, and I, I was talking to a colleague recently about learning all this new stuff. And she said, you know, the, the hard part with learning, learning all different things is then we're forced to admit our mistakes and all the mistakes we've made in our careers. And I thought, that's about right. That is true. We do have to admit our mistakes and apologize for them as well. Um, so I've been working in behavior, thinking about this, and I've come to realize that I don't think small changes are enough. I think we really have to, to revamp kind of a whole our whole system of doing things. And I know that's so overwhelming. And often I think when we're overwhelmed, we kind of don't do things. Um, so, you know, and uh, I'll talk about that later. Um, but it is humbling to think about all the mistakes I've made in my career and about kind of what my behaviors, our behaviors as professionals, what messages we've given kids and what we've taught them by putting our hands on them. Um, but I'm sure we'll talk kind of more about that. So little story, because I like stories and storytelling. Um, I call this kindness trumps control, trying to take back that word. And it could be called caring or compassion, um, trumps control. So little kindergarten story. Um, so I'm old. So I'm so old that my kindergarten wasn't part of school when I was a kid, or at least where I lived. So you'd have to go to a private kindergarten supposedly if you were lucky. And um, my brother had gone to this kindergarten on a farm and he loved it. So when I was five, my mom sent me. And day one, I had a huge meltdown. I don't really remember it, but I wasn't having it. So since it was a farm, kind of the farmhouse was next to the school room or schoolhouse. So I must've been so disruptive that the um, director of the center, she sent me to her house and her daughter was home. And like in my memory, um, the daughter was like a fairy princess, but I think she was probably a 14 year old girl. And I came in and I was so upset and she gave me milk and cookies. And to this day, I remember that feeling of like, relaxation. Like I felt like things were going to be okay. Um, and so when I've thought about the, that experience in the last months, um, I thought 
thank goodness they didn't have a behavioral consultant back then. Like she or he would have said, oh, don't let her escape those demands of whatever was happening in kindergarten. And certainly don't give her milk and cookies and reward that temper tantrum. And if that had happened, I think my memories of, of kindergarten would have been very different. Um, so, so when I tell stories like that and I think about like compassion and kindness and caring, I kind of feel, I don't know, maybe it's just me, but I feel like a little cheesy. Like I feel uncomfortable with those concepts. And, you know, and when I think about it too, like, doesn't it all come down to just like about treating people how we want to be treated? I mean, isn't that really what everything is about? But it's so hard to imagine like uh, a staff training where we're kind of just talking about those things, like being nice to other people. Um, I, I, it just doesn't, it just doesn't work that way. But, but that's what it is. It's kind of treating people the way you want to be treated too. So, so I'm just going to tell you kind of how I've been thinking about behavior and, um, and we'll see if it resonates to people. So I want to start with, I do think we, we can support people behavior. We have the power. I don't know if that's the best word, but the ability to impact the behavior of, of students, of clients, of children, we, we can, um, but it's best to partner with them to do it. And to remember that people use the behavior that's worked for them in the past, and they're gonna continue to use that behavior if they don't have new school, new skills. And all the reinforcement, all the rewards in the world won't change an individual's behavior if they don't have the skills. So when I um, when I do these presentations in, in person, I usually pick somebody in the audience and I say, um, will you sing the Dutch national anthem? And the person usually says no. And then I say, all right, I'll give you 20 bucks. Will you sing the Dutch national anthem? And, and they generally say, uh, no, I, I can't, I, I don't know it. And then I say, all right, $100 to do it. And it's silly, right? But, but I think it's what we do to kids all the time. We, we offer rewards and reinforcement when they don't have the skills to do it. Um, so, so try to keep that in mind. So also if you guys have been in behavior trainings or read about behaviors, so, we talk about in traditional behavior training, the function of challenging behavior is to get something or avoid something. But, but it's so much more complicated than that. And, and that's, I think, one of the things I wanna talk about today. And we can't improve challenging behavior unless the problem is solved or the need is addressed. And just looking at rewards and consequences is not enough and it can even make things worse. So, you know, I do behavioral consultation in schools and agencies and programs. And, um, and some places will say they have a behavior plan and it's just a list of rewards and consequences. It's not a behavior plan, um, too. So, so a few words about function. So this is, this is how I think about it. 
So people seek what they need, right? So control, people seek control when they're feeling anxious. People look for attention when they're needing assistance. And people avoid what they can't handle. So they escape or avoid or even refuse to go to school if it's not working for them, if they can't handle it. Um, so I think it's, it's all about the whys. It's about why does she need attention right now? Does she need help? Or why is he needing to avoid that room, that lesson, that person? It's all about the whys. So looking at just the simplistic kind of functions, that just doesn't make sense or work for me. I, I kind of like to be practical in my approach and things have to make sense to me. What does make sense is Behavior is communication, right? So challenging behavior is a signal that tells you there's a problem. Russ Green sometimes calls it the fever. It's like the fever um, it's just, or a signal. So it's not the behavior that's so important. It's rather than what's important is what's causing the behavior. So, so that's gonna be a common theme for, for what we're gonna talk about today. Um, I don't know if everyone thinks about success and failure the way I do. That success is much more motivating than failure. It's how we learn, it's how we become more skilled. We have a, a fantasy, I think, that people learn more from failure than they do, um, especially children. They, they don't, they don't learn from failure. And any of us adults who like ever been on a diet, you know that, you know, your first week, if you're doing Weight Watchers or something, if you've lost a pound or two, you're super motivated to keep it going. If you haven't lost or God forbid you've gained weight, you're like hitting a drive through on the way home. So success doesn't, that's what teaches those lessons, right? Not failure. The other thing I think we have trouble in our, our own minds with is that human behavior is inconsistent. Um, you know, I'll go to a school and a teacher might say, well, you know, he's certainly not trying in spelling today because yesterday he could do the spelling. It just human behavior doesn't work that way. Uh, when I was young, I played some tennis, never well, you know, but I was never a good tennis player. But, you know, sometimes the stars aligned and my serves were always in. But then the next weekend I might play and not be able to hit a thing. And if someone came to me and said, well, you must be not, not be trying today because last weekend you played better, I've been furious. But we put all these judgments about like good behavior and bad behavior and, and none of it is, is helpful. Um, and we, and we also don't naturally think preventatively. Most of the calls I get from parents or, or staff members or teachers are always kind of what should we do when, you know, the student hits or spits or runs or whatever. People rarely call and say, how do I keep them from hitting? Or what, you know, or say, can you, let's figure out what this behavior is telling us about this person. What needs do they have that are unmet? What's going wrong for that person? It's not natural, but it's what we need to do if we're really gonna support um, kids with behaviors of concern. So, right, this is my favorite picture on, um, 
on the presentation. I looked hard for this. Our approach is backwards, right? So we need to focus um, on the root causes of behavior and, and not the behavior and getting rid of it. We need to figure out the root causes. All right, take a second look at the picture. I looked hard for it um, too. So it's the good news and the bad news. We change the behavior of others by changing our own. And this is really across the board in our families and our relationships, um, parenting, if we're educators with our students or with our clients, this is how we change other people's behavior. So, so I've also been thinking a lot about, about this, this knowing ourselves. So I think just by nature, humans are pretty punitive. Maybe you guys are the exception, but I, I think we're pretty punitive um, and we have to fight against it. But I think it helps to really reflect on yourself, your own triggers, how you deal with stress, what kind of support you, you need how your history of behavior when you, in your family was addressed. Because I think we we always have to be mindful and, and silence the voices that come up in our heads, you know, that, um, you know, like I, wanna, I don't want him to get away with this behavior or, or this kid needs to be taught a lesson. Th those things are natural. I think for us to think about, or even that they're going to learn from um, punishment or from failure. But I think we have to fight those things that are part of ourselves. I think they're natural, but we have to talk ourselves down. Um, so, so spend a little, a little time on that. I think it's important and needs to be done continually. So, so I like to think of behavior as an onion, right? So you have to really kind of get down the layers and unpeel to really understand it. And that takes time. It just does. It just takes time. And the solutions take time too. There's no really quick fixes in, in these things. Um, and we can't just keep doing what we always do and wish for different results, right? That's that human thing. Um, but it's on us to find the solutions. It's not on the kids. It's on us. And it comes down to changing the environment or parts of the environment, teaching skills, solving problems. Um, but it's on us. So in my seven months, too, besides kind of studying behavior, I've, I've spent some time reading about history. And one of my, my thoughts over the last months is that humans, we can convince ourselves of anything and we really can justify everything we do. And I think that shows through history. And I think it really shows in kind of the, the work of behavior change or behavioral supports too. So the tip of the iceberg. So a lot of books, um, kind of have used this and, and theories probably and beyond behaviors, it's probably the best description of kind of the, the iceberg and that we need to explore what's underneath. So above, you know, the water is what we see. It's the challenging behavior. But underneath are the important things, right? So sensory differences, trauma, auditory processing challenges, um, 
just the history of school failure, um, problems with kind of cause and effect, or just the lack of understanding of how certain things in the world works. It, it's countless how many things could be underneath that um, iceberg. So, but that's our job. That's our job to pay attention and figure that out too. All right, so I'm gonna tell you another, another little story. So, uh, um, excuse me a sec. So I have really bad vision and I wear contacts. And I um, used to see a really patient, lovely eye doctor in downtown Chicago. And I'd go every summer and I'd go to my appointment and he would say, Diane, so how's your vision been this year? And I'd say, I don't know, I, you know, I can see far, but I really can't read with my contacts at all. And he'd say, uh-huh, I know, you need to wear reading glasses. Then a year would pass, I'd go back, say, hey, Diane, how are you doing? How's your vision? And I'd say, you know, well, okay, I can see far with my contacts, but I really can't read. And he'd go, yeah, I know, you need to wear reading glasses. It was really, it was like Groundhog's Day, years, years. And um, I should be embarrassed to talk about this, but I'm not because it helped me kind of understand behavior. So one year, probably after four uh, Groundhog Day years, I went on Saturday afternoon like I usually do. The next Sunday day, that Sunday morning, for some reason I was free. And I was so excited to be free. I went to my favorite cafe, coffee shop. I got my huge latte. I got the New York Times and the Chicago Tribune. I piled everything up. Um, and I think it probably wasn't a very bright and sunny day too. So, and I looked at the paper with my contacts and uh, oh man, I can't read. But the eye doctor's words were fresh in my head because it was just yesterday. And next to this coffee place, was a CVS I had parked in front of it. And I thought, oh, I bet they have reading glasses. I left all my stuff, less than five minutes and $10 later, I was back at my table with my latte in the newspaper, put on these new glasses and whoa, I could read the paper. And um, from that day, I've always, I've multiple, you know, everywhere I've reading glasses. I, I've never not had them, but, it really took these four things lining up. You know, the paper was the motivation and I was so excited, I had this free time. He had just told me about the glasses. It was so convenient and cheap to get these glasses. And I really wanted to read the paper and I could. So all these elements had to come together um, for me to make like a simple little behavior change. Um, and. And I like this story because it's mine and everybody likes their own stories. But I think it points to just how challenging behavior change can be for, for everyone. Um, Michelle Garcia Winner always says that, you know, schools will write 10 behavior change goals for a special ed student, but most adults can't keep their one New Year's resolution. And I think that's true. We, we pretend that it's so much easier than it is, because I think we want it to be. 
Um, so behavior analysts, I don't know how many are going to watch this, but, um, you know, I think many behavior analysts kind of hide behind jargon. It's this weird behavior analysis thing that like complicated words for common um, items or techniques, but there's a lot of jargon. And I also think in behavior change, it's really easy to blame um, a parent or a teacher or the individual if the interventions don't work, even if the interventions weren't good in the first place. I think behavior change should be a partnership and parents or teachers, if they're working with behavior analysts, should understand the process. I think behavior needs to generalize to different um, environments and different situations. So if a child can do something with a, a skill with a behavior analyst and they can't do it anywhere else, that doesn't really count um, to me. I think most behavior analysts, just like most teachers or therapists, went into this um, field because they want to help people. I think, you know, in all these fields, there's a little group of people who maybe just like to control other people, but most folks who go into these professions really are hoping to help. Um, but I think there's lots of problems happen in the, in the real world. And what, one thing that I think was helpful that came out of this traditional approach for me is being in touch with um, the concept of knowing if what I'm doing is working. It's, it's hard to tell sometimes, and I think that it's an important thing to know. We'll talk a little bit maybe about that later, too. So the F word, right? So um, that's what I call it, but F stands for feelings. And behavior analysts, we don't talk much about feelings. And we like things kind of logical, but behavior is not logical. And anxiety driven behaviors, they often seem illogical, but we have to talk about feelings and emotions because it's often what the person is avoiding. And it really took me, I think, to um, until oh, recent times when I was studying PDA that it, I fully understood that it's the feelings that are often what is being avoided. Um, like I, I, you know, kind of locked in at different points to like, it was the math work or it was gym class. But what it often is with the, the math work is that feeling of embarrassment or, or discomfort or, you know, that awful feeling when you're, you're not understanding things. So often what people are avoiding is the emotion. So we have to talk about feelings and we have to understand them. And we also need to stop giving the message, especially to kind of um, neurodiverse populations or kids with disabilities that feeling badly is a bad thing. In the last seven months, I've gotten so many calls from, um, you know, mostly worried parents and, and, you know, I understand parenting that, you know, concerned parents would say, oh, 
my child's really having a hard time in the, in you know right now they're they're um lonely and they're worried and i'd say yeah good they should be right these are times that are are we're supposed to feel worried when things are worrisome and i think for clients i've known i mostly work with adults i think we've kind of given them a message that they're supposed to be happy all the time even when things aren't going well. Um, and that's caused them, I think, to pretend they're happy when they're not. And we certainly don't wanna give individuals the message that they shouldn't pay attention to their feelings or that their feelings aren't right. Like, don't be a sad, don't be worried, don't, don't feel lonely. We don't wanna give those messages. Um, I think they lead to big problems later on. I also, um, I'm a little concerned on how emotional regulation programs are being used in many schools and programs. I think emotional regulation is such an important topic and understanding our emotions, right? But I see them being often used as behavioral programs. Like it's bad to be angry. It's, you know, if you're in the red zone, that's, that's challenging behavior. And that is not the intent of these programs. And I, I'm very worried that they're turning into behavior programs and more reason for like kids to get scolded or in trouble. Um, you know, this is my feeling. Sometimes people just lose it. I know I do. The demands of the situation exceed the ability to cope might not be logical, might not be trying to get or avoid something. It's just part of the human experience too. So, so with neuroscience, right? I think we're learning more. We're paying attention hopefully more um, in, in the behavior world. Hopefully that's gonna come. Our nervous system protects us. I talk to kids and clients about this, um, but I think it's generally fight, flight, freeze, that's generally what's behind the challenging behaviors of the kids and adults I'm called into to write behavior plans for. That's what, it, that's what this is about. Um, so when I think of, you know, fight, I think of, you know, uh, high school kid kind of having an emotional melt meltdown in gym, let's say, and kind of, you know, the, the behavior folks, the SWAT team, the um, you know, they kind of come in into their space while the kid's having this emotional episode and he fights them away. So that's fight, right? Flight, I see in my, you know, my head, uh, my mind's eye, you know, uh, a little girl struggling with an academic task and the sensory issues in the classroom to the point she can't handle anymore and she runs out of their room. We call that elopement in um, behavior, but it's flight, right? Or freeze, I have, I have, you know, kids in transition programs and job sites and they make a mistake at work and their bosses and their coworkers are giving them all kinds of instructions how to fix it and they're just kind of frozen and not responding. But the boss might say um, that the kid is um, being non-compliant 
or, or not following the directions they're being told or being disrespectful or disobedient. But it's really just our nervous system. And, um, you know, as you all probably know, it's there to protect us and keep us safe. It's not a behavior problem. And, um, and probably my, my hardest kind of consultations are when the, the school is calling about a student shutting down with freezing. And I keep saying, it's not a behavior problem that they're freezing. It's not challenging behavior. Um, the other one I can't handle is when the behavior problem includes crying. Like crying is not a behavior problem. Um, but I think everyone who, who works with children or adults or, or in any of these um, professions needs to understand and read kind of all the wonderful stuff that's out there on neuroscience about people needing to feel safe to do well. Um, but here's the thing, it's not just the kids, and I, I only recently started thinking about this. We all have nervous systems, right? So, so in the school setting, when a child is having a, a big emotional reaction, um, then the adults around, their nervous system gets lit up. And they're supposed to judge and determine if that student is a danger to themselves or others. That's the criteria, right? Which that seems a little strange to me anyhow. But, but that's what they're supposed to figure out in order to follow the laws about putting their hands on this child. But they're triggered. So they're going to feel danger. So they're not going to be able to accurately judge, which is why we have to kind of take that option off the table. And I'm sure we'll talk about that. So those of you who have kind of had some training in behavior, I think we just have to move past these simplistic explanations of functions or solutions. I, um, those behavior plans I get to do for these, these great attorneys. I'm usually writing 18 page behavioral assessments, which replace a one or two page kind of generic behavior plan. Um, we need to, to dig deeper. We need to figure out the why and the why now. And if you want to think this way and you're part of a team or working in a system or your boss doesn't think this way, it's tough. I get it. Um, but I think, you know, we can be leaders in talking about um, digging deeper. I also think we need to kind of police each other for that judgmentalness that creeps into the behavior work. So many behavior reports I read um, say things like, Johnny does well when he chooses to. There, there just needs to, there's no room for judgment in, in these kind of um, reports or the work we're doing to support students. And we have to find a way to be respectful in terms of how we support people, kind of doing things with, not to, figuring out how, how someone's voice is part of it, 
how they ha- they're part of coming up with kind of the, the plan, the solutions. Um, th- I've been thinking a lot about just that kind of um, word respect and where that comes into behavior change. So we also don't talk about the last straw. And I don't know, maybe because it it seems simplistic, but but so much of the case, that's really what happens. And that is a problem when we look at antecedents, right? Often we look at kind of the last thing that happened, but that's not really how humans work. You know, we're all like those pop cans, like everything that happens to us is a shake and it depends when you open it. And um, things build up, things come together. So I I think it's helpful to kind of keep this picture, it is for me, in mind and thinking about the last straw as a concept or a helpful concept too. So I had said earlier, I like behavior change. I feel really privileged and fortunate to be invited into people's lives to be able to, to support Um, behavior change, if it's leading people to, you know, happiness or well-being or reaching their goals, uh, because that's what this should be, right? It should be about helping people get what they want. And, you know, that journey of of self-understanding. And so I like behavior change. And I, I like that it's in my head, like detective work, that it's about the discussion and figuring it out. It's not, and but I know that's not really the approach that's taken. Um, most of the, the behavior plans I see in schools, um, you know, are pretty much cut and pasted. They're they're all very similar, um, and and I'll say things to teams about you know, this detective work and figuring out what's underneath. And it's all about the discussions and problem solving together. And often, you know, I think people look at me like I have two heads. Um, But I I think it can be really exciting to help people, um, you know, make meaningful changes in their life. And, And that's what this is about for me. So, all right, here's my like one kind of cartoon. So after a hasty special education placement for behavior problems, school officials were embarrassed to learn that Marty really did have ants in his pants. All right, so I added that because people have said, like mostly my family members, that my presentations are way too serious. So I have like one humorous thing in it. Um, and I do, I do think it's helpful to have a plan. I'm, I don't think we should kind of um, wing it in behavior change, like too much is at stake. And the shooting in the dark that schools do all the time, like usually they, um, a method for shooting in the dark would be to um, you know, add a reward sheet or a sticker chart or something like that. And sometimes it works short term, but, but that's not the approach, I think. So I like a plan, but it needs to be a good one. Um, and I think it's sometimes a hard decision in um, a school to, for families to decide, like, if your child's better off with a behavior plan or not. In a perfect world, a behavior plan adds protection, but it needs to be 
a good plan. Um, and, you know, I'm always kind of looking to figure that out, how to um, be creative while kind of staying within the confines. Uh, I don't know if every state is the same, but in Illinois where I am, so there would be um, an Illinois state like form kind of the, the outline for a school-based behavior plan. So I'm always trying to kind of work within those confines, um, but still make it helpful. And, you know, sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. So, so I'm going to talk a minute just about kind of school-based plans and some of the agencies I work with, um, they also write plans or sometimes I, I want them to write plans. I just want them to write good plans too. One of the things I see in the schools I go into is that um, it's usually way too many behaviors that they're trying to tackle. Um, I like one, maybe two. Most descriptions of behavior in a school-based plan have 10, 12 kind of rolled into um, one paragraph. And I think there's different ways to prioritize what makes sense if you are going to tackle a behavior. There's all different ways and the PDA literature talks about that too, like really figuring out. Um, they have good ways in figuring it out, kind of, you know, what you want to, to spend your focus on. But if you do more than two, it's, it's just not going to work because you're supposed to really carefully define what this behavior is going to look like. Um, it's also important to focus on patterns, not isolated incidents. It's also, I guess, human nature. But when I go to schools, often they want to say like, well, one time so-and-so did X, Y, Z. And I just think, why, why is that helpful? The one time thing. I want to know kind of patterns. Um, another concept is precursor behaviors that not everybody talks about or knows about. And it's those little warning signs that someone is struggling. And that's when we can um, put in supports. And I know I use the word intervention, um, but I'm probably using intervention more broadly than a lot of people. I just mean it's like the stuff we do to help. Anything we do is an intervention. So we want to kind of intervene kind of when the person is just struggling a little bit. And, and often there are signs of that that we miss. And then the person really is struggles when it could have been prevented. Um, so that's something to pay attention to. And, and this is kind of the traditional way we look at it um, in terms of, you know, a school-based plan or an agency plan. So, so setting events also aren't, aren't understood, I think, well, and they can be helpful, is knowing what things set the stage for um, challenging behavior. So that's a good thing. Um, I better talk faster. Um, one of my goals um, I've been working on is to slow down, but today I'm going to speed up because I'm going to run out of time. Um, so figuring that out, we can talk about antecedents. Hypothesis is it's hard, right? We want to um, we want to have guesses, and we want based on understanding behavior. We don't really want to assume. We can't be confident. We want to make a plan. Um, we want to teach skills, 
And then we want to do stuff differently and see if it works. So this is kind of a traditional recording um, form that's used in ABC thing. I kind of came up with this one night, really looking about the environment and what needs to change in the environment. And then, so that's E, and then C is communication, what that behavior is telling us. Um, and then I added an A for after, but I'm not so big on really what comes after. Um, too. And there's all kinds of assessments. So many of you know the ALSUP, Ross Green's assessment. So it's really helpful in figuring out kind of, again, it's all about that figuring out what's going on with a person. And then I found online, these folks were kind of pioneers in the in inclusion movement. And what I liked about their behavior assessment is not, behavior's not mentioned. Like challenging behavior is not even mentioned. It's about quality of life, about the person's relationships and um, you know what their life is like and their sense of well-being and feeling like they have skills and they're contributed, contributing and that they feel powerful. And then the people who support them also get support, right? So the takeaway for that is people who are well-supported, who have power and control in their lives, fulfilling relationships, have skills, feel successful, have meaningful activities, have fun, you know, make contributions, have a sense of well-being, who feel relaxed and heard, don't have challenging behavior. And I just love that too. Um, Studio three, which I'm going to talk about in a minute, said behavior intervention plans, they call them stress support plans. And in Ireland, there's a big agency and they just label all their plans with a communicative intent. So instead of saying, you know, naming it target behavior running away, it would be um, he's letting us know that he wants to leave his job site. I thought that was awfully cool. So it's a process, no quick fix. And data is helpful because we want to use data to make decisions because if, you know, someone, let's say, screams 50 times a day and we try to do things differently for that person and the behavior changes that they scream 40 times a day, if we don't have numbers, we're going to think that our interventions didn't help because it's still a lot. And we're gonna say, oh, he screams all day. When it's not true, we were really on the right track, possibly. Um, so data is good. Again, we don't wanna get rid of a behavior unless we understand it. Because um, we could cause more problematic behavior and I call that playing whack-a-mole. We have to understand the behavior. And we could be eliminating behaviors that are actually helpful to the individual. I think, you know, as we know, like some people, um can't look at you if they want to process information so if we want them to have eye contact that that's going to be harmful some people need to pace when they think or hum so we don't want to get rid of behavior too and and the plan is a roadmap for adults and the numbers are about whether the intervention's working none of this should be about blaming the individual um, who needs the support too. Um, and we need to take time to look at what we're doing to reflect on our own part of the process. It's, um, it's not a luxury. And we shouldn't do it if we don't have time to do it correctly. Because if we do it well, we can impact behavior and make things better for the person we're concerned about. Um, but behavior can't be looked at in isolation. 
So three most important factors, prevention, prevention, prevention. And then help with skill building to prepare them for the real world. Um, we want them to have skills too. And there's, you know, there's different kind of things I've learned in behavior that are, are helpful. So there's things we can do. So it's all the pre-teaching, teaching people um, what kind of they need to do instead, if the, you know, building those skills and video self-modeling is really helpful. Doing these partnering with a student or client is the best way to do it. Having them practice what we want them to do um, and making sure that mistakes aren't part of any kind of new behaviors we're trying to teach. I think momentum isn't thought about enough that um, I think even academically, they found that kids on a spelling test, if you're building momentum, can get more new words correctly if those new words are following mastered spelling words, because we build momentum of doing things that are easier for us to do, and that helps us with the, um, the hard stuff. Backward chaining, starting at the end of kind of what we, a situation we want somebody to be successful in and working backwards instead of, you know, having someone try something and, um, and stopping if it doesn't work out so well. Um, been thinking about habits a lot lately too. Um, I think trying to build new habits, linking new habits uh, into somebody's repertoire of behavior that can work for some folks. I think you just have to be careful that things aren't imposed and they feel like a demand. I think we have to watch how we communicate. We have to tell people exactly the behavior we want to see, not what we don't want them to see. Um, I think often our communication is what gets in the way of supporting folks. And people say no when they can't predict what will happen if they say yes. And I think we have to be really mindful of that um, too. Hardest intervention is to do nothing, to just sit quietly and present and pre be present with another person. And that's often what is really needed to do too. And what comes naturally for us is often the wrong thing, right? We, we talk to people when they're not available to learn. And we teach lessons after the fact, like after somebody trips, we say, watch your step. Or after someone spills something, we say, um, be more careful. Um, we treat things as a knowledge deficit when they're not, when it's just a difficulty in, in handling emotions. We explain the rules to somebody like they didn't know the rules after they've struggled. It makes no sense to me, but we do it all the time. Um, I like a couple um, quotes about swimming. There's a cool retired psychologist in Virginia who um, has a great website. And he talks about when a person is drowning, it's not the time to teach them to swim. And we do that a lot. We give information when people are really struggling and they're not able to hear it too. So I'm just going to talk a second about reinforcement, mostly because I think even if people try to use it, I see it used incorrectly often. It's like based on some ar like arbitrary schedule. It's not what this person has chosen as reinforcement. And it only works if motivation's the 
the problem. We also count things as rewards, even if it's not impacting behavior. And, and we set up all this artificial stuff when people can, if you're using reinforcement, can be rewarded with what they were wanting in the first place too. But I think what's important for people to know too is that working for rewards can increase anxiety. So it, if you're gonna use rewards at all, it only works for people who are, you know, that motivation's the problem and they have the skills and they don't have high anxiety. So that, that's something important. So the shaping is just, we don't have to reward kind of a huge behavior change, just little steps in the right direction. But we have to be careful what we reinforce. I think there's a great danger in compliance training. Um, it sets people up to be harmed and exploited. So we have to be very careful about that. It also encourages people to mask, which takes a toll on them and on others too. Um, so we wanna really focus on the environment. Too. So a couple things that I see as big problems. So planned ignorings in like every behavior plan. Um, so even when people are trying to do it, it's usually done wrong because it's only would work if somebody's trying to get attention. It's supposed to be half of an intervention where tons of attention is poured onto the, the person. It's not about ignoring. And then lastly, most importantly, he, I don't believe humans should be ignored. I think if someone needs attention, there's a reason. I don't believe in ignoring human beings. Um, lots of programs have kind of processing after a changing, a, ch a challenging behavior, but I, I view a lot of those processing sessions feel a lot more shaming to me than processing. They're about reciting rules and making the kid feel bad, where processing should really be about repairing the relationship um, between people and making them feel safe too. So the devil's in the details um, and, there, and punishment is not helpful. It, you can change behavior without punishment. It hurts um, people, it can make settings aversive. It doesn't teach what to do the next time. Um, and people are always changing. This is out of the PDA um, literature about trying to figure out at the moment where someone is in their tolerance before you put a demand on them too. So I mentioned Andy McDonald. He's the one who came up with low arousal approach, which is fabulous. He's in London. I'm hoping to bring him to America. And his um, approach is all about altering the adult, the staff member, the teacher's behavior instead of the client's. And in practice, it's about reducing and environmental arousal, being quiet, being aware of your nonverbal cues. Not well, says cures, but it's supposed to be cues. Um, reflecting, and it, it's this whole cultural shift to work on our own stress responses. Um, and it's not about forcing compliance, it's about reducing the demands, decreasing pressure, lowering stress, right? Low key instead of domineering. And he says, manage the stress, not the behavior. And, um, Bo Alvin in Sweden, he should watch his videos. He's amazing. So, so he um, is a low arousal practitioner. So he talks a lot about managing behavior. It's not, when there's a crisis, it's not a time to teach. It's just kind of figuring it out, getting through. And when um, 
And he talks about challenging behavior is a behavior that causes problems for the people around the person. And often we assign motive to the person and think they have more control than they don't. He talks about kind of our emotions being contagious. Um, and that, that's what happens in situations I see all the time. We're stressed, we're upset, and that um, gets translated to the student or client. And he talks about adjustment of demands too. So in the escalation phase in, in a crisis, it's about kind of keeping calm, looking away, not being dominating. Um, and anytime you give a demand, like step back, the opposite of we do, we go forward. Just avoid emphasizing yourself. And sometimes you have to just give in, which we're so bad at. So I, I love this part. And he says, like in the chaos phase, when things are really hard, generally all you have to do is kind of wait it out. We don't. We don't wait. But that makes all the difference. People generally will work it through without us doing anything. Just kind of don't touch the person, give them space, and make other people leave the area. And when it's all over, just wait. There's a mess. This adult cleans it up. I love that. And he always says, you just move forward. Try to get back to things as soon as possible, how things were before, sit quietly, offer hot chocolate. You don't have to talk, just comfort the person. Um, and after figure out what went wrong, right? It's just such a different approach than what we usually use. And it's really a trauma-informed approach. And um, you know, and what works for trauma is what works for people who are struggling. It's that feeling of safety that is so important and not isolating the person who's struggling. There's, you know, trauma, people are saying they're trauma informed in their schools and programs, but I think sometimes it's a one day lecture on trauma. So close is no cigar. And we need to really look at things differently, not just tweaking how we do it, but being able to really look outside the box and have meaningful discussions. And, and we don't about these, these really hard topics. And, and, and one of the things that always comes to mind for me is rigidity. Often kind of you've got these really struggling kids and then in a school, the principal say, oh, next year I'm putting them with, you know, Mr. Jones because he, he's, you know, really structured and predictable, this teacher. We're most, you know, it's rare that folks um, say like, oh, this kid's struggling. He needs this teacher because she's really warm and nurturing. But rigid and rigid doesn't equal flexible. When we push people, they just dig in their heels more. Folks have to feel heard. And, and people have to be emotionally regulated to, to listen. And we have to connect emotionally to get movement. Um, and it's about the relationship. It's just about the relationship. And we have to be regulated if we're gonna help other people get regulated. So we have to practice self-care. Um, and this is the time, right? People are doing it. Studio Three, Russ Green, Grafton. There are models for us to make changes in making school better for students. I think it's possible and I think it's now. All right, thank you so much for listening. All right, fantastic. So um, Beth and I are rejoining you and I'm gonna take your uh, slides down here. Oh, good. Then I can see humans. Uh, yeah. So you, <laughs> you should be able to now go back to the uh, the human screen and see us. Uh, and uh, thank you. That, that was fantastic.
Okay. Uh, we co covered a lot of, uh, you covered a lot of ground there. And one of the things I love about, um, you know, what you're doing is you're taking um, really great things from lots of different areas. You know, you're taking the work of Mona Della Hook and, um, you know, Stephen Porges, and you're taking, you know, uh, Ross Green's work and uh, Andy, uh, you know, with, with Studio 3 and so much great stuff kind of coming together. So, um, really, really informative. I want to let people know that are watching live that we will be taking questions. So if you have a question or a comment, uh, you're welcome to put that in the uh, chat comments now. Uh, but we'll probably uh, start with some questions um, from Beth and I and uh, go from there. So thank you again so much. And Beth, thank you. I always know you have a question ready. So I'm going to go to you for the first question. Um, <clears throat> actually, it's not a question. It's an observation. Sure. And it's just exactly what um, you were talking about taking information from lots of different sources, which I think is the answer to a lot of our issues. Uh, because when we start one place and get siloed, we don't consider all the different options that are out there. So I really appreciated that. And I also, it struck me, um, I mentioned to you before, right before we went on air, that um, I spent, I, I heard two lectures by I forget his first name now, Vermillion, from Peter, who wants to be called Peter, not uh, his last name. So anyway, uh, and, and several of the things you said were so in alignment with what he was saying. And I, I think we are, as you said in your last slide, I think we are poised at a place um, that as we work together, uh, we can make differences. And I did love what you said. I don't mean to point. <laughs> uh, I did love what you said about um, with the restraint and seclusion. There's enough uh, evidence and data uh, that it's bad. It doesn't work. Uh, it causes harm. That it should be off the table. Um, and it made me think. Um, and you also talked about why it's so hard for people to change. Yeah. So we have the problem on the one hand. And the answer, on the other hand, and in the middle we have, it's hard to change. Right, right. Yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. So I wanna share a couple of comments here real quick and uh, we'll keep we'll keep going with the questions. Um, just some really positive comments. Uh, this here from Lisa, love your presentation. Uh, thank you so much for sharing. Uh, have another one here. Uh, this was fantastic. Oh, thanks. And uh, another one here from Michelle. Thank you so much. I needed this. I'm sending my kiddo back to school on Monday. And Michelle, we wish you all the luck if, with uh, moving forward with that. And we have one I, here. Go ahead. Uh, I was good. Go ahead with that. And then I'll say something. Okay. Uh, we have another one here from Mark. Uh, and he said, this is wonderful. So much good information that is easy to digest, clear in its direction and evidence-based. Bravo. And, and they keep coming. So, uh, But I'll let you go ahead and take, uh, take something here, Beth. Yes, I saw one that I thought it was from Michelle, but I may not, I may be wrong about that, about how they, yeah, here it is, um, that your son is in the seventh grade, Michelle's son, and uh, all of the teachers have never been able to answer what was the antecedent to the behavior ever, not once, why is this? And then later you um, address that. And I wonder if Michelle felt like, um, she got the information she needed because you went right to that mm -hmm. later on in, in your presentation. 
about the fact that the straw breaking the yeah, right. It doesn't work. Like we want, yeah. I think with so many complicated things and, and I think it's what always comes to mind is like, like with grief, like so complicated. So we like to tie it up into like these neat little stages and it's the same as behavior. Like it's so complicated that we want to like, you know, check off these boxes. Okay. Antecedent, this one thing where it's just so much more complicated. Mm -hmm. because what happens too is because um, so many things have to line up, we're, we're different every hour, really. That That's where I think teachers and adults trip up and think it's like motivation or will. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, because mm -hmm. yesterday, Jim, he was okay in gym, and today he's not. So instead of saying, yeah, because it's not like one clear antecedent, because that's just not how it works for humans. Like, it just takes us in the wrong direction, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And, and in terms of working for humans, there was another comment here. Uh, New York, uh, let's see, article today talks about uh, huge changes for our society, including yeah. schools post-pandemic. But this is really interesting to me because, you know, the things that we talk about in relation to uh, education you know, we see happening in other places as well. We, we often have this very law and order mindset and it's all about compliance. And, and that's true of whether we're talking about, you know, police on the street or teachers oh, working with yeah. kids that, that have challenging, you know, have challenges that often it's that compliance uh, based approach that leads to the problem. You talked about it. And I love this because I've talked about this with my son before. But if you have a, a child that may be having a hard time and may be inflexible and the adult meets that back, Right. With inflexibility, you know, that leads to yeah. escalation. Um, mm -hmm. So, yeah, well, I mean, what do you think about that in terms of deeper changes needed to uh, society? I, I agree. I think it's across the board, it, but it's fighting our nature, I think. And we, and we have to acknowledge it and be mindful. But I do think that the time is now because we are struggling with all those, those mm -hmm. bigger issues and hopefully good can come. We're also, um, you know, for a horrible reason, but we're much more conscious of, of space between humans, right? So mm -hmm. that's in our mindset now, which maybe wasn't so much before. Mm -hmm. And maybe that will be helpful as we're trying to keep personal space. Maybe that will stay as more habitual is leaving room, um, but we we're still going to always, I think, have to fight it. Our our response is going to be going towards the person and not giving time and space. Um, right. Thank you. Uh, so, Beth, before I get to your question, uh, we have another. Actually, my two questions. I wonder at using the power uh, of yet with kids. You may not be able to do this task yet, um, but we will keep trying and working on it. And I also, and also learning from mistakes, specifically sometimes we make mistakes and it's okay. We can learn from them more like letting the child know it's okay. Um, it is okay to make mistakes, not a bad thing. Right. And I think with mistakes for sure, I mean, I think we need to model that it's okay to make mistakes more about how we handle our own mistakes and admitting them and even apologizing for them. If that, works. I'm not such a big apologizer, but um, I mean, I think in context, it's important when, when it's genuine and it has to do with remorse. I think when it's just telling somebody to say, I'm sorry, and 
that's not so helpful. So I think modeling it um, too. I think we also, we do want to remember that we learn more from success than, than mistakes. So we want to um, prevent mistakes if they're preventable, you know, because I think we learn more by having fewer mistakes. And that's why I like the prevention part of behavior. And I think that yet it depends on the individual, the person and their sense of time. And if that gives hope. And I think that's kind of what you're wanting to say, yeah, like, and you're, this is going to get easier that, and that's a, that's a great thing. Hope yeah. is a great thing. Yeah, I mean, it's about being human, right? I mean, at some point, it's about, hey, you know, this happens. We all make mistakes. We we have to learn. And, you know, I, I always go back to Ross Green's, you know, raising human beings. I mean, that that's our goal right. here. Yeah, and in therapy with, you know, my clients, it's always my go-to. I'm like, do you know why you did that? And they'll say, I don't know why. I'm like, because you're a human. I mean, it, and even when you know it, it just always tickles me how our standards for ourselves are so different than our standards kind of for, you know, other people. So um, all this stuff is hard for us to do. We make mistakes all the time. And, um, and that issue with like knowledge versus behavior, you know, like if I'm speeding, you know, to a meeting, I'm not like saying I'm making a conscious choice that I'm going to increase my likelihood of death today. Like that's not what we do. Like, right. like, or tonight after um, this presentation, you know, I'm probably even, you know, even though I know I shouldn't have like a bag of tortilla chips and a vat of guacamole and walk it down with a few adult beverages, <laughs> but it's not because I I think those things are good choices, right? But we say those things about kids all the time. Like he knows what he's supposed to right. do. Right, but he doesn't right. do it. Like, really? Yeah, because he's human. We all do that. Yeah. And I love how you tied that together in terms of, you know, there's a, a huge tendency to look at all behaviors volitional. Kids are always making a choice. And of course, you know, the more I've dug into this, the more I've learned about even the way our brain works. I mean, our, our brain goes through a process of what we refer to as myelination when, right. you know, cells are getting ready and connected. And, you know, we don't have our full executive function until we're in our 20s. Right. Um, yet we, we put demands on kids as if they were little adults. It's pretty amazing, right? Yeah. And like that motive where so much, I think with my clients is just that understanding cause and effect. Right. Right. I mean, that, and we, we think it's volitional. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And you said something that I so appreciated was treat the stress rather than the behavior. Uh, and for for the, the uh, kids who have the high anxiety, and the, whether they, whatever, wherever that comes from, it is by ratcheting down that stress right. and ratcheting up the sense of being connected and safe with another human that you're going to uh, see the behavior go away um, if the behavior is a stress-related behavior. Right. So, and, yeah, I appreciate and, that. Oh, gosh. And all our approaches, our traditional approaches, increase stress. Right. It's right. It's so, so silly to me. Well, and, and one of the things that I saw, you, you spoke to this, <clears throat> is the judgment. And yeah. someone had a question here, too, about um, someone taking the kid's behavior personally. I think it right. all comes to the judgment thing. There's always, and, and, 
Uh, when I say there's a me see things that say there's a meaning to behavior, I always have this red flag go off because I don't think I think when you say there's a meaning to the behavior, that sounds like intentional, right? Uh, voluntary, right. Uh, and that leads to he hit me on purpose, right? He doesn't was defiant to me on purpose, right? He doesn't respect me, and I think this is a real social, um, cultural thing that we have got to. Um, knock this off the block because it's not just our kids in school, it's the criminal justice right. system who is looking at everything as though it's volitional and we have to punish it. Um, so anyway, that I mean, really good food for thought. No, We've I, got to address I too. And with the judgment, it's not just on the kids, it's about the families too, right? Oh, absolutely. Mental, yeah. you know. Yes. Yes. Yeah, and you mentioned this, Beth, with the comment here about do you have tips for working with That's teachers, right. yeah, who personalize the child's behavior? Yeah, and I mean this this is right on to what we're talking about is is that yeah. once you personalize something, uh, it makes it so much harder. As you talked about, you know the 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 fight or flight response is not just happening in the child, but as things become escalated and the adult enters that fight or flight mode, you know things just get worse and worse. So we, we have a lot of work to do on that in terms of trying to steer people away from this compliance-based law and order approach. Absolutely. And, and that reflective piece, right? And that, you know, was to Mark's question, we don't anywhere have those conversations like mm -hmm. about, you know, what's your, you know, how kind of how were you raised and what is your viewpoint on discipline and children's behavior? And then taking all that and then what I think is then separating it to when you work in the field, when you're a professional. Like, you know, as a professional, like your role changes. It does. And you have right. to kind of reflect on your own stuff and keep it in check. And you're gonna be better with your friends and your family if you can take that, if you have embraced that self-reflection and non-judgmental and not assuming things right it is critical for your professional role but you're going to be better with your family and friends if yeah. you can carry it through your whole life absolutely and and being able to reflect on that like even like oh that's just me again taking that personally Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, so this is a good transition into something from Janice, who says, yeah. so if we think about, again, how do how do we help change the lens of, yeah, of yeah. teachers, educators and others that are having a hard time with that? And she mentions, well, I've handed out a few copies of Lost at School uh, right. and I have as well. I, I've been yeah. there with you, Janice. I've handed that out. Also, Beyond Behaviors is another great one. Uh, I, I find that uh, Lost at School is really great for setting up, you know, what you can do differently. And Beyond Behaviors is really great about explaining the why. Because if you don't understand mm -hmm. that behaviors that, you know, top down and bottom up behaviors, uh, you know, you look at it all as choice. So that's a great tip from uh, Janice. Is there anything I else, Diane, that you would yeah. recommend sharing with uh, professionals? Um, the Power of Showing Up is a great um, book, too. Um, the Dan Siegel, Tina mm -hmm. Payne. Life. I have my books above me. That's what I'm looking for. <laughs> that's, a, that's a great one to give. But I'm all about that. And for all my um, PDA families... I always say gift, you know, kind of the understanding PDA and children book to your child's school. And it's great. Like you're doing a nice thing, but you're also making a point. That's right. That's right. Yeah. So so on that, we are just about at time here. Um, mm -hmm. But I, I always reserve one last question for Beth. 
because she usually has about 40 more questions, but we'll, we'll, we'll let her have one more question. Beth, do you have a final question before we, uh, before we wrap up? And it can't be a multi-part one. Oh man, <laughs> now I have to rethink it. <laughs> if there's one piece of advice you would give the people today, uh, what would that be to do tomorrow? Oh, that's a good one. <laughs> I, I think, so I don't know if this is helpful, but I feel, or maybe it's just me, we get too like on the hamster wheel. We get too into what we're doing. So my advice is to like take a step back, really like reflect about yourself and about your the kids you're interested in and, you know, kind of the resources, like really look at things with that like stepping back instead of just like doing what you do, because that's what we're good at. We just mm -hmm. do what we do. And, and why? Because we've always done it. Mm. Right. Isn't that it? Like we do what we do because we've always done it. So step back and even ask yourself why, like, why do you do it this way? Why do you do it that way? Like really try to reflect and why it would even be better if you have friends you work with, try to make it a discussion, mm -hmm. you know, and talk yeah. about these things. Yeah, I, I love the why. And, and it gets, it gets to a point about behaviors and that sometimes concerns me when people say, I don't care about the why. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But unfortunately, that, that happens sometimes. It's just a matter of, oh, these these simple, simple functions of behavior. And it doesn't matter to me why. We just want to change it. Right. Yeah. Humans just doesn't work that way in my in my agreed. Agreed. Yeah. Well, this has been fantastic. I really appreciate you pulling you know, putting together this presentation for oh, us yeah. and That's spending an some time. That's yeah, no, it, it's absolutely great. I mean, we've gotten a lot of really uh, amazing feedback and you know really just appreciate your perspective on you know how you uh work successfully with with children and how you tie in all these things together because you know i mean as beth has said we we do need to kind of move forward and come up with this shift to to enable us to do better and you know i like to believe that we can do better and if we can we we've got to do better and and really appreciate you sharing all this with us today and i appreciate all the great work you two are doing it's just so important thank you well, thank you so much. And I want to remind our audience, I'm going to go, Diana, I'll let you go back and, and Beth as well. Thank you so much. I've got a couple quick updates here. Uh, I want to remind everybody that this is available uh, as a recording. So you can watch it later on Facebook or YouTube. We also make it available as an audio podcast. Um, so I want to thank you for all participating today and bringing your questions. Uh, I do want to let you know we've got a, another great presentation coming up in two weeks. So we continue to uh, have these uh, events and we've got one with Matthew Portell uh, that's coming up here in about two weeks. We're going to be talking about trauma-informed schools. Uh, so please join us if you can. And thank you so much. We look forward to seeing you next time.